Welcome to the Insightful Investor Podcast, a weekly series that seeks to share industry, investment, and market insights. We define insights as concepts that are counterintuitive, widely misunderstood, or underappreciated. In other words, unique ideas that you probably won't hear elsewhere. I'm Alex Shahidi, the host of the podcast and co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, one of the nation's leading investment advisory firms. Learn more about our show at insightfulinvestor.org. Today, we have a very special guest. Rajiv Jain is uh, with me today. Rajiv, thank you for uh, joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's my pleasure. Rajiv is the founder, chairman, CIO, and portfolio manager of GQG, boutique investment management firm that manages global equities. And most impressively, uh, Rajiv, you started the firm a little less than eight years ago, and you went from zero to $120 billion in a you know, very short period of time. And obviously, there's a reason that capital is attracted to, to you and your firm. Uh, so my goal today is to uh, try to extract some of the insights and unpack uh, the magic that you have going on there. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. Well, you've been a stock picker for a long time. You started as a teenager. Would you share with us how you got started? Yeah. So uh, I got started in high school. And um, I guess my dad wanted to keep me busy uh, in high school doing summer. So he gave me some stuff to do on the stocks and talk to the broker and so on and so forth. And that's how it got started. And as you know, there's a common story or fairly common in this business. People get hooked on because of the uncertainty, the excitement uh, when you make money and depression when you lose money and that kind of stuff. So you get excited and and you get hooked. So that's how I got started. And you know, it's been it's been a fun journey. And if you could give your younger self advice today, I'm curious what what would be some of the key points you'd emphasize. I think in hindsight, and and I was I've always been pretty curious about things and just sort of exploring new things. Uh, you know, from an investment perspective, just reading widely, I would say that that I could have done more, because the more open minded you are about uh, what uh, you know way to invest, but that really comes from sort of explore other areas from reading perspective. The better you you know better you would be. It also makes it more fun, by the way, to explore new things to experiment. It just makes it better, and I think I think I wish I could have done more of that. Sounds like you did okay, uh, regardless. Uh, you were at Von Tobel for 22 years, and you left in 2016 to launch your own firm. Would you explain why you felt that you needed to do that and um, any of the experiences you wanted to share in that journey? So, I mean, to start back, when I when I became the CEO at Von Tobel, we had around a billion dollars under management. And first, within the first three months, we lost 70% of our clients, Right. Because you know performance is not good in the in in some of the big products where where you know there was somebody that's running those after the dot com, and it was fun building. It was a lot of sort of anxious times, as you might appreciate when you lose seventy percent of the business, you restructure the team. The question was survival, and we went from like three hundred million to fifty plus billion dollars over fourteen years. So we had fourteen years of consecutive growth. Every, you know every product outperformed by a pretty um, you know pretty, uh, pretty substantial margin, which was fantastic. Uh, however. It also led to changes from a cultural perspective because it's part of a large European bank. And I thought it's time to move on, A, to sort of just, you know, uh, have less of that, that that red tape, but also to sort of um, uh, reinvent myself because I thought 
I learned a lot over the years from mistakes. And I always thought that investing is a journey of learning from our mistakes. So I thought it'd be good to sort of start with a clean, fresh slate, rebuild the team. I didn't hire anybody from my prior team and not repeat some of the mistakes, some of the lessons I've learned, but repeat some of the things that I've worked. And I think that fresh start was a lot of fun. Again, a lot of anxious moments still are because this game never stops. I mean, people talk professional sports, but this is a this is way more competitive. Uh, the marathon doesn't end. But I think I think that that fresh start was huge in terms of improving the game. And I'm always a big believer that this is about improving, tweaking, improving, learning. And those are the reasons why I left. And that's been a big part of what why we have succeeded also. If I just continue exactly the way I did before, because people always ask me, oh, why is it different? And what are you doing the same? So look, actually, you don't want me to repeat the same thing I did that long because I, you know, you would hope that I've learned something. Yeah. And also competition catches up, right? If you're if you keep doing the same thing, eventually that becomes known, it's in the price, and you have to continue to innovate. And I, I guess it's easier to do that when you start, a, start from scratch, right? You've learned a lot, you've learned the things that worked well, the things that maybe didn't work as well, the things you wanna change. And it's hard to do that when you've had this uh, inertia going. And it's, I guess, easier to start fresh and uh, with a blank slate, as you described. Exactly, so I think markets are nothing but an arbitraging machine. They will arbitrage what has worked very well. I mean, look at low wall. I mean, all these funds were launched for low wall. Guess what, they stopped working. What I call backward looking quality. People thought it's like panacea by high quality names and it doesn't matter the valuations and we all happy live after. Well, vast majority of those funds, minimum 15% ROE last decade, then guess what, stopped working. So things that have worked very well will stop working. Low price to book, that stopped working maybe 25 years ago. Low PE, good luck, right? So I think I think that's what makes this game fun, but also you will become redundant unless you're willing to change, evolve on you know on ongoing basis. A GQG stands for Global Quality Growth. Would you describe what that means to you and how it forms the foundation of your approach? We invest globally. I think being an emerging market investor makes us better U.S. investor and and vice versa. Uh, a lot of trends we see in U.S. are very portable to emerging markets, and again, some of the emerging market trends are very portable here. For example, two you know two and a half three years ago, we start seeing inflation numbers pick up in U.S. I I had a little bit more familiarity with what what what, do, what does that mean for more expensive tech? I've seen that movie in emerging markets where expensive names can get really impacted hard if inflation suddenly picks up, right? So that was a lesson learned in emerging markets, not in U.S. U.S. you have not really seen big inflation issues, right? So global quality is what we call forward-looking quality as the business improve, not backward-looking. If you can quantify this, it'll be arbitraged away. There are plenty of ETS which come out every other day, uh, which quantify uh, and try to arbitrage you know, what has worked well. So it's forward-looking quality. Now, third one is growth. We growth not as a style, but growth of capital. Our job is to compound our and our clients' money over the long run. So when we say growth, it's not growth as a style. A lot of cyclical businesses are, if they're improving, are perfectly good growth growth vehicles, right? Uh, as you know, we had a big exposure to energy a few years ago, and, P, and, and folks said, well, how is energy growth? Well, depending on the capital that has gone in the business, it could be a fantastic growth space. So growth of capital is what we focus on. And as you know, Alex, vast majority of my personal net worth is always invested in the products that we that we have for our clients. So vast majority of my, and, and, and by the way, our CEO's money 
is invested exactly the same way. So that's how we think about client alignment and hence GQG. Okay. And and you have these four core principles, alignments, adaptability, uh, being unconventional, and performance. Uh, would you walk us through some of those? So alignment we just talked about. I mm-hmm. think that's first and foremost because um, uh, that impacts behavior. Uh, if our clients are down, that means we are down personally. Second thing is adaptability because, as you know, world will change. There's nothing permanent in this world. There's no absolutes. Everything is relative. And the direction of travel matters. So you have to adapt. We will make mistakes. I mean, we lost a lot of money in Russia. We were wrong. But we also got other things right. We simply can't say that, oh, we will never do this because it's always been bad. We'll never do this because it looks bad is the right response. Rather than saying, for example, if you look at steel industry, steel industry sometimes can be very high barrier to entry businesses. Other times it can be very cyclical and low quality industry. So you can't simply say it's always bad. Tech has been bad for a long time and can be good for a long time. So adaptability is hallmark of everything we do. You know, sometimes we've been accused of being a value manager. Sometimes we're accused of being a growth manager, right? Uh, we always like growth businesses at sensible prices. Then really sort of uh, other stuff that that uh, you may, the, the other two principles are kind of we already talked about. So that are parts and parcel of, of, frankly, of the first two. One of the things that I've observed talking to managers for the last 25 years is it seems like there's just a lot of investment managers who it feels like they went to money manager school and they all kind of talk the same. They invest the same. They kind of have the funnel and it doesn't seem like there's really, it's hard to extract what the real value add is. You can look at their performance, but that could be more luck than skill. And one of the things that I think stands out is your your notion of adaptability, being unconventional, I feel like if you're just like everybody else, you're basically like the market. You're not that different from an index fund, plus or minus a little bit, and a lot of that could just be luck. I assume this concept of adaptability and being unconventional is, uh, I guess you think similarly in that sense. Yeah, so it's funny because that, I mean, if you look at unconventional, we feel there's nothing really unconventional, but it looks unconventional because buying energy three years ago, we thought the fundamentals were fantastic and and there was a whole narrative around why fossil is bad, although I find it amusing because all those folks protesting uh, do use polyester, do use plastics, right? They say, okay, so if you shut down fossil, there's no polyester, there's no plastic. You can't build roads. 80% of fossil used for non-mobility just because you have EV doesn't mean you don't need fossil, right? So I thought it was very conventional. The fascinating part of this business, Alex, is the market is nothing but me, you, folks we talk to, right? That is the market. So. If you all agree that Microsoft is a great business, question is how much of that is discounted in valuations? People forget Microsoft went from 60 times earnings to 10 times earnings, and you lost all, you know, almost lost a shirt over a 10-year period. It's not always a great business. There's a management needs to change. And, and I think that aspect has to be incorporated in thinking. And sometimes that leads to other areas. I do believe, particularly in this day and age, Following conventional wisdom is a real problem because there's a strong narrative for and against certain things. I mean, last year, Adani's, we invested in Adani during peak of the Hinderborough crisis, right? Or, or short sale report. The more work we did, we thought the, the narrative was not, not nearly as accurate. In fact, it was basically inaccurate, but that gave us a ridiculous opportunity. So you do have to be a little bit uncomfortable, and that's more so today because 
the narrative can fly all over the world because of social media and 50 other reasons far more and becomes ingrained. Fossil is another one, right? Emerging markets, what is good and bad? China, it China because a big consumer market will do well. Well, maybe, maybe not, right? Most of the folks probably wouldn't know, I'm talking professionals, that China's corporate earnings have declined for the last five plus years. That's a fact, not my opinion. Well, maybe that's why the stocks aren't doing them, right? So I think this very convenient and comfortable to follow what others have done. People talk about Buffett all the time, quote Buffett. Well, guess what? Buffett is happy to buy energy in a big way, is happy to buy China in a big way, and Japanese cyclical commodity names in a big way. Vast majority of folks who follow Buffett wouldn't want to do that, right? So there's a big, folks come with a mindset. And if you have a strong mindset, fixed mindset, in my opinion, this, this is a tough business because the world will change. I think what you're, what the core of what you're saying is you have to be independent thinking and not necessarily blindly follow convention, do it because everybody else is doing it. Therefore, it must be the best thing, but look at it independently. And sometimes that may lead you down the path of what others are doing. And oftentimes it leads you down a different path. And for you, that may be convention, but compared to others, it may look unconventional. Exactly. So we, we loved tech for a long time, but in 2021, we thought it was almost like dot-com type uh, mania. Not exactly, but there's obviously subtle differences. And, you know, you see the classic signs of late cycle, frothy IPO market, crazy IPOs, no business models, facts, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, massive retail participation in basically very speculative businesses. But we didn't know how to time it. However, what we did know is that as inflation start picking up, inflation is a real problem for speculative areas and all frothy areas. You go back to 73, 74, you go back to a bunch of emerging market crisis. Pick up inflation is a real problem. So we started reacting to that, right? So, but we do incorporate macro. People say, well, we can't, we don't know what macro is. Well, as I said, markets are an expensive place to find out. So we cut back very aggressively on tech, but the data began to improve last year. So, but we will be wrong. Uh, we, we assume we'll be wrong at least 30, 40% of the time. You don't have to be right 90% of the time. That's right. Your firm, GQG, has grown from zero to 120 billion in seven and a half years. Uh, I know you focus on performance. That's how you got to where you are. I'm curious how you think about uh, this explosive growth in assets. I'm very grateful for the response of, you know, literally thousands of institutional investors and retail investors, so on and so forth. So we, I'm very grateful. Nobody expected that, by the way, when we launched GQG, people said, well, what a long-term goal. I said, long-term goal, I hope we survive. Uh, because who knew? At the end of the day, it's performance and in a manner that people can understand what we're doing. But at the end of the day, it comes back to my personal belief is performance is what matters. The rest is talk and talk is cheap. It gets harder as you grow, but the markets are wide and deep, even emerging markets. I mean, emerging markets are 21 plus trillion dollar markets. These are large markets. So we feel there's room. Vast majority of shops, in my opinion, have failed not because of size, but because they refuse to adapt. We start going, you know, trying to go fishing in ponds where there aren't any fish left. It worked very well. There's a lot of fish, right? Think about financials. Folks did very well till 2007, 8, and they still keep talking about financials, US financials, European financials, right? That movie ended 16, 17 years ago. Maybe they are fine once in a while, but vast majority of sector struggle. Energy. The movie stopped in 2013, 14. There was no money to be made for 10, 12 years. Tech, for a decade, there was nothing to be done. 
So we feel that our our job is to keep open-minded, look for the data, explore, take baby steps. If we make mistakes, go back. And 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 I think I think that way you would not be completely out of line for a long period, which is why how shops disappear. By the way, they keep saying, "Trust us, this is what we have done. Look at our thirty record. That's wonderful." But do you really drive a car looking at your rear view mirror? How wonderful the road has been. Nobody yeah. does that. No, if you if you do that, you're going to have accidents very exactly. frequently. <laughs> exactly. Obviously, you've had this big growth. I just want to be clear on your sense about does that limit your investment universe? You talked about being adaptable, but does it does it shrink the availability to continue to generate alpha um, and maybe more specifics about how you think about that? So there's no question size is an anchor. However, I personally believe that we can underperform with lots more asset base too, just because it's lar- so larger asset base or smaller, you know, it correlates somewhat, but not as much as folks think. Because we have always operated in very large liquid space. We make too many mistakes. And our median market cap most of the time is between eight to 10 times of the index. So average market cap doesn't really tell you as much. We don't try to buy small cap and mid cap and so on and so forth. So that's a big difference. The second part is, and we have adapted quite a bit over the years, is that we also want to structure deals where we can sort of get preferential access. For that, you do need size. If you look at Adani deal last year, if you're running tiny asset pool, we wouldn't have been able to structure anything close to what we did. However, size is an anchor. So it's not sort of contradictory. Uh, we do need to be able to figure out things, but we open a very large liquid names. I mean, uh, even 30 billion, let's say in EM, but market the, the market cap in EM is 21, 22 trillion. So we feel that uh, if, we, if we don't do well, it won't be because of size, but it'll be because of other or, or if most time it's because I said, refuse to ad- acknowledge and admit that we're wrong. We believe we need to cut our loss and adapt. Right. And obviously getting bigger also gives you uh, more resources to hire and and attract and retain great talent, which it goes back to sure. the you know ability to continue to generate alpha. Exactly. Uh, but I would say I think I think I think it's it's far more of a the space that we operate in. And B, are we willing to acknowledge things not working? Look at China. I mean, we start cutting back China, and in hindsight, it's a huge mistake not cut back faster. Why vast majority of emerging markets are maybe two, three hundred base point underweight because they hate China? Well, that doesn't that doesn't move the needle. Because you look at the index when you get up in the morning, and you look at the index while when you go to sleep. Guess what? You will not trim China because there's always somebody saying how wonderful things are and so on and so forth. I'm pretty sure we'll own China again in a big way somewhere down the line. But at this point, the data doesn't, it's not positive. So move on. So you, there were large liquid markets. You could have sold as much as you wanted. So there were no size issues. The problem was the folks, most of the folks simply didn't, did not want to sell. One of the interesting topics you've brought up is this notion of creating an environment of healthy friction within your organization. And the idea there is that extracts the best investment ideas, as opposed to what most firms do is where they're seeking strong cohesion. Uh, would you expand on that idea? So I'll tell you, we recently passed on a candidate because I thought he was very similar to what we already have. And I told the candidates, look, they're the only folks who think exactly like you. We don't need another one. Uh, folks who write, uh, send us, uh, you know, sort of, uh, and I'm now giving ideas about thesis on 
contradictory thesis on names, some of these names you own, we always, always explore them in terms of how they're thinking about it. Because uh, as you know, we also have hired investigative journalists, former investigative journalists, who, whose full-time job is basically to find faults in our existing names. So we we seek disagreements. Uh, and, and that's when the debates are fun. What's the point of having a team who always high-five each other and agree all the time? By the way, that's a real problem in this business. Folks are hired. If you see their background, they come from similar schools. We they tend to hire from sort of you know identical you know type of schools. That's usually a bad sign, not a good sign, because the markets will be pretty ruthless if you're wrong. So our view is I'd rather have disagreements inside the you know inside the room, around the table, than the markets disagreeing with us, because that's an expensive proposition. And we, by the way, we we. We track everybody's performance, including mine. So it kind of becomes black and white. So if you agreed, and if you're wrong, but you agreed for the sake of agreement, not going to help you. Yeah, it, it's better to figure out that you're wrong before it ends up in the portfolio because that lesson is expensive, as you just described. And sometimes, by the way, even after we owned it, we've, a lot of times we sold the names within a few months because we thought, you know what? Because we keep working on those names. You can never get to eight, nine on a scale of one to 10 in terms of knowing what you want to know or need to know about the business. The markets are moving. So you take a decision, but as you get more data points, you say, you know what? Oops, we are wrong. We'll cut a loss and move on or sometimes cut, even sell out on a profit because this is, the thesis is not as strong as we thought. I feel that's perfectly fine. Why anchor what we thought said five years ago, two years ago, two days ago? And nobody cares, by the way. It's our own mental issue that, oh, no, we bought it, so we need to justify it. And folks have said, oh, didn't you buy that a few months ago? Yeah, we did, but we're wrong. Or there's a better alternative. Think about sports team. Does anybody say a same team is going to play the whole season? Why do we do that investing? We're wrong. The market certainly doesn't care what your thesis was in the beginning either. Exactly. It's funny because we say, oh, we own this name for 20 years, and we've owned some names too, but... Why is that a virtue? I personally shorted Amazon, by the way, 1998. I'm glad I covered it in like, you know, like in three months after quickly losing 40% plus other, you know, uh, otherwise I'll be bum on the street. But so yeah, we won Amazon for, for 25 years. That's great, but it's not really relevant. You got to look at the overall return pattern, right? So long-term ownership is wonderful if it works, but in itself, to me, it's not positive or negative. Right. It's not one decision you make to hold it for 20 years. It's, you know, 20 or 30 decisions along the way that you make. Yeah. Our job is to keep taking singles. If you get a big home run, that's great. But a lot of times in hope of getting these multi-baggers, as Peter Lynch called them, look, Peter Lynch did that fantastic. That's that's great. But unfortunately, you know, we don't have any Peter Lynch's air. So our job is to keep taking singles and 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 avoid losses. You've always been hyper-focused on being open-minded and self-aware of any potential blind spots that you or your team may have. I'm curious if there are any areas that uh, you're looking at now that you hope to improve over time. There are a lot of areas. So one of the things we do constantly is try to find consistent patterns of failure. Are there pattern? Uh, so I'll give you one interesting data point that vast majority of bigger losses in our portfolios have come with lower multiple names, not higher multiple names. Now that's kind of humbling, right? Because Vast majority of the industry starts with valuation or stock is cheap, so on and so forth. And I've said that too all the time, how cheap it is. Yeah, but bulk of the losses, the not bulk, the bigger losses have come 
in lower multiple names than higher multiple names. These are names that we bought. So the initiation point was a lower multiple, higher multiple. So we just divided the book into halves. And guess what? The bigger loss came. The hit rate is lower in lower multiple names. So how do we incorporate that systematically? So we try to find patterns of failure all the time and then adapt. Say, like, okay, that's a, that's a con, you know, our screening has changed in terms of some screens work very well in cyclicals, but doesn't work in growth stock. But we feel cyclicals can be enormously profitable area. Last few years, commodities have been big area where we have done well. Most of the growth measures, you know, uh, wouldn't wouldn't even look at energy name even if their life depended on it, right? As you know, that's fine. But 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 some they could be. What if this is a ten year bull market energy? If you said we've never owned commodities or financials, I would say good luck. You may, the business may not survive. I mean, a lot of shops disappeared from 1970, 1980 because they would refuse to look at commodities. Our job is we need all the tools in the toolkit, whether it's commodities, cyclicals, financials, materials, energy, you name it, right? Obviously tech, right? Now very bull, bull, bullish on tech. So, uh, but the the way you operate in deep cyclicals is very different the worse you look at growth stocks. So one of the things we did when we launched GQG is some of the areas where my own record was not as good, we tried to add that talent. Because the good news in the business is, if your backhand is weak, you can have somebody else play a backhand. You can't do that in tennis, right? But in this, you could easily do that. No problem. So we, we, if, you, if you don't have anybody who understands energy, hire somebody. Improve the game. And I've seen shops simply refuse to sort of add new areas because, oh, we find it's hard to invest. Well, have somebody who does know how to invest. So all of this actually folds into this notion of building an organization that can survive you. That assumes that you can systematize your skill sets and your talents. What's your experience with that process? It's hard, but it's very doable. In fact, even today, I would say that we are we're far into in our ability to sort of replicate the uh, a lot of different things in terms of how we build out the portfolio, the PM team, the analyst pool, the investigative journalist, the quantitative part of it to help us sort of be more repetitive, the adaptability inbuilt in the quantitative screens. So that's that's just part of it. And I and I feel we look if you look at last three, four years, particularly since COVID, there were a lot of cycles in 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 a four-year period. You had a bull market in tech and a bear market in tech and a bull market in tech. A bull market, bear market energy. I mean, oil was negative in, in summer of 2020, not that long ago. And then a massive bull market. So uh, if we would not have been able to sort of navigate reasonably well without some structure put in place. I don't think I would have been able to do it alone. So I'm pretty, I feel pretty good in terms of where the team is and how we sort of navigate various parts of cycles. And and a lot of it is also instilling a culture, right? The culture yes. of being adaptable and independent thinking and and being unconventional. And that takes time, but it takes repetition. It takes, you know, processes, systems in exactly. place and so on. Um, so would you just talk at a high level, your approach to stock picking? I know there's a big macro influence. Um, would you walk us through just the framework? We have multiple screens. And I know everybody talks about screens, but in my experience, vast majority of folks are not disciplined enough to look at the screens because fees force you to find what area is attractive. Basically tells you which pause to go fishing in. We start with that. We allocate names to multiple people. Uh, first one individual, if 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 that analyst likes it, then we have somebody else look at it. 
if generally positive opinion. In the meantime, we keep discussing, by the way, we also operate a fairly small team. If you look at the size of assets we manage, we probably the most amount of assets per analyst. The number of names we own today has not changed, by the way, in the last seven, eight years, which is fascinating. So we're not buying more and more you know, names because to accommodate because we always operate large cap space. There's a lot of accountability at every analyst level. So it's hard to hide. Everybody's numbers are tracked. Their thinking is tracked to the extent possible. So that's how the, the core process, how it works. And obviously, nuance and differences. Sometimes deals happen because on a shorter notice, but we keep working on them. So sometimes you execute faster and then keep working on them. But over time, the repetitive nature of what we do can be very helpful because vast majority of large care names we probably have an opinion on. It may not be fresh, but you have an opinion on. So refreshing those is faster. That, by the way, is the important part of, of the game, in my opinion, that you need to have what I call big inventory of names, names you looked at, but by small group of people. When you have 50, 60, 70 analysts and 20 PMs, the decision-making is gets very, very difficult and complicated. Then you have director research in between, right? Yeah, it sounds nice we, that we have super special look at Korean PNC insurance, right? It can be that level of specialization. But how do you how do you integrate all that information? In fact, one of the problems in China, in my opinion, was for in folks investing in China, in the last few years, there were a lot of special looking at China. Guess what? They always found something attractive in China. But the answer was sell. That was simple, right? Reduce. But if you're super specialist, it becomes very hard. Now there will be time in China is attractive. And I, I'm sure there will be a time, but it should be relative to other things because as I said, everything is relative. So having super specialists is counterproductive. Second thing is you want to promote risk-taking. We are in the business of taking risk. Buying Microsoft, Microsoft today is not risky. Just like buying Exxon in 1980 was not risky, was conventional wisdom. Buying Microsoft in 2000 was risky, but everybody thought is least risky at 60 times earnings, right? So I think I think, I think think whatever, whatever has worked for you, the shop, doing things opposite of that is considered risky. But if you're not willing to do that, you won't survive. So how do you push the boundaries while taking calibrated risk? That is a cultural aspect, which is which we feel particularly good about GQG, that we want folks to say a suggest name that we never wrote before, rather than going back to financials and again going back to European financials or 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 or, or tech. We only do hyper growth. That, okay, that's wonderful. But that's basically saying you always drive 75 miles an hour. Right? A lot of growth shops, we never look at any cyclical, no commodities. Well, if you always drive at 70 miles an hour, you know the outcome. Not going to end well. Don't know when, but won't end well. Right? So I think, I think that's part of the culture. Push the boundaries a little bit in terms of the names, sectors, countries. Today, for example, we have little more in what they call MENA markets, Middle East, North Africa, than China in emerging market fund. Never had that before. It's a small exposure because China is also small. But if the data points prove that we are on the right path, we'll probably will increase. But if the data says, you know what, the earnings are not coming through, value is too expensive or something else, we'll start cutting back. But that's like driving. You don't predict what speed you will go the next day, right? You, nobody says, oh, today I'm going to drive 20 miles an hour. Don't care what. 
But I feel that's how most of managers behave. We'll only buy this. We only buy low multiple. You know what? That stopped working 20 years ago. And the shops which have underperformed S&P, for example, the US for 20 plus years. And it's not because they don't have the talent. It's simply the rigidity. You know, Alex, there's a fine line between stability and stagnation. I mean, most managers, as you mentioned, stick to a certain style. And one of the, I think, aspects of your approach and just your mindset is this uh, idea of being adaptable and and flexible. Would you maybe talk a little bit more about this, this that notion and then also why you think it's not more common? Because it sounds obvious when when I'm you know talking to you right now. Well, because I think it's hard to undo what we have learned. That's human nature. We are creatures of habit, right? Uh, something that has worked well for 10, 20, 30 years. Like, I mean, look at us, right? I mean, my view is that adaptability matters. So that has worked. So I'm sticking to that. Now, adaptability itself means change. But I think, I think, I think it's basically fighting human nature of accepting, acknowledging our inherent weaknesses. That world is inherently temporary. There's no permanence in this world. There's no absolutes either. I mean, for example, conventional wisdom would say democracies are better for investors. Look at the evidence. Not true. Korea, Taiwan, Chile did far better under when when their autocratic leadership than democracy. But there's some some autocratic leadership that are completely killed the markets. But the data is very clear that it, it isn't obvious. But if you ask vast majority, if you read financial you know uh, publications. People who think that autocratic leadership is always bad, not so not true. So I think I think I think being open-minded to new data is a little bit harder than you would have thought, and I think that's a human nature issue that folks would basically eliminate candidates during interview process who say something contrary to what our beliefs are, and we've tried to sort of inculcate in our in a hiring process everywhere that we actually don't want similarities. If somebody pitches exactly our names. Or in the same thesis, a behavior. Chances are we would not. We have zero interest in that. Tell us why we're wrong. So we try to seek a disagreement. And by the way, it's not easy. But the more we do that, more I think the system will become kind of like anti-fragile. You know, to 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 use Nassim Talib's you know phrase, it's not not easy to do. And I'm not saying we're there yet, but this constant effort to sort of find the uncomfortable other, which is diversity. By the way, that's what diversity is, right? Find the uncomfortable other. Yeah, there's real insight there because I think part of what's happening is the investment world is a unique universe. If you go to the rest of the world, the you know it it doesn't change as quickly. You can kind of do the same thing. You know, you, if you're a doctor and you're doing a good job, you can keep doing the same thing for your whole career. The investment world, because it's so competitive, because the players set the price and the players are constantly learning and evolving. You have computers coming in and competing. You have specialists competing. You have to continue to evolve, and and also you have a long time frame where it's hard to distinguish between luck and skill, and maybe you underperform for a while, but maybe that's just unlucky. And so you can go through these long stretches, and so it is a very different investment world. So I think that that it's a different world in terms of the way things work. You know, the laws of the universe in this space are different. So I think the real insight is appreciating that, and then and I think that's what leads you to recognizing that you have to be adaptable. As you rightly said, I mean, in medicine, for example, if somebody has learned surgery for 20 plus years, they're not going to say, oh, we're going to do something completely different. But the problem is in, in investing, people will learn and that won't work as well. So you got to change. And and as you rightly said, it, it, that is the biggest part of the problem that 
it, it doesn't guarantee success, but I think the odds of survival go up. And that's all we're talking about. How do you improve odds of survival? So speaking of that, what, one of the challenges in investing is, it's as I mentioned, it's hard to distinguish between luck and skill. So you could underperform for a stretch and feel like you're investing correctly, but the market isn't rewarding that and you're underperforming. And so how can you distinguish whether that's luck or skill and are you losing your edge or is it just the market is irrational and it's going to correct at some point? How do you think about that tension? So look, that's a question to think about internally all the time with, with the team, right? And and I think I think the way we think about it is to look at why they were making the decisions of what they were doing and why the market isn't responding because markets can be uh, off tangent for a long time. I mean, you saw crazy valuation in tech and 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 you know and some of these names in 2021, right? And there was a full-blown mania on. But you saw that fundamentals were not tracking that. The cash wasn't coming through. Yes, yeah, some business is going to be Amazon, but not going to have hundreds of companies be next Amazons. Problem was everybody thought that, oh, if Amazon did well despite losing money, you know, uh, there were a lot, lot more Amazon. Guess what? The world doesn't work that way. You do need to cash flow and earnings soon to pay the bills. So we tried to see the separation, uh, did, did, appreciate the difference between the the process of decision making is it act is it correct or not and sometimes that is rewarded sometimes that is not rewarded which is, which we have to make sure we accommodate that for otherwise you become kind of a momentum shop that it should be working here and now and that can be only possible in relatively small teams larger teams it becomes impossible because you can't track everything because there's a lot of qualitative thinking it's not one of those businesses where you can throw more people at it and because oftentimes what happens is you have 30 people looking at a problem and that leads to mediocrity as opposed to one really insightful person looking at the same thing. And that one person could outperform the 30, you know, cons more consistently. Yes. Yeah, so, so there are folks from time to time who have no names in the portfolio, probably fine. Because I would rather have folks say, look, there's nothing in Asia, not just nothing in China or Korea or India or nothing in Check in Asia. I said, there's nothing in Asia, but I love Latin America. I love US tech because there's so many names, but I have nothing in emerging markets. Oh, that's wonderful, right? Because you know that somebody's sticking their neck out. They probably thought through, but you need to have a conversation. And I think, I think being a broad set of opportunities. So one of the challenges always is that are you looking widely? Right? Do you have the breadth of names? So I always find amusing when people say nothing to invest. I said, there are tens of thousands of names. Are you saying there's nothing to invest? They got something to do. And we feel that the breadth helps. Like in 2021, if it did not have sort of, if it didn't cover energy and commodities, so on and so forth, tech was very expensive. And so were actually a lot of other higher quality, you know, businesses, what I call a backward looking high quality, by the way, because Exxon is a very high quality business over the long run. The fact is Exxon has survived in fairly good shape for over almost 140 plus years. It tells you it's not a bad business, right? Business don't survive a century plus. I don't know too many tech companies that have survived 100 years. So uh, so I think I think that is the aspect that we need to think about in terms of uh, is the thought process rational? Does it make sense? And markets may or may not reward. But if you have a breadth, then you'll find other names because at the end of the day, it's a relative ranking. It's like sports team. Not everybody has to play perfect all the time, but maybe somebody's playing better today. But next, because the, the, the industry is a sweet spot, but no industry is going to sweet spot forever. Would Microsoft be great forever? No, right? It's hard to predict. So 
but that relative ranking forces refreshing of ideas. You know, public markets are very challenging. It's it's relatively efficient. And so generating outperformance consistently in public markets is incredibly difficult. I'm curious what you feel gives rise to the inefficiencies that you seek to exploit and, and take advantage of. So by the way, I think private markets are pretty competitive these days too, because somebody had asked me, would you do private markets too? I said, look, I think I've not exhausted all the ways I can lose money in public markets. Let me exhaust all the ways I found ways of losing money in public markets before you focus on private markets. Uh, and guess what? In the last few years, we found out they were actually pretty damn efficient. Uh, just because you're not marketing to market daily, it doesn't mean they are inefficient. And in fact, it's more problematic with too much capital is going in and the valuation is crazy. I mean, you've seen like complex Stripe go to 100 plus billion valuation and I don't know, it's down to like 20, 25 billion. Well, what happened? So we feel that the two aspects to what your question, one is see the disconnect between what the stocks are pricing in what the and what the reality seems to be. I mean, energy names a few years ago, the business was generating a lot of free cash, but the stocks were sort of not discounting anything at all because the prior decade had been, it had been a disaster. And the second part of that is that you do need to be able to make higher conviction bets, i.e. size them aggressively. If you don't size aggressively, the disconnected areas, even if you're right, you won't make money. And that's the paradox that some of the areas where you feel there's a bigger disconnect, you have to size aggressively. But then those are the problematic areas too, because you could be dead wrong, right? Narrative is not always wrong. But that's where we feel you need to cut losses too. So as you can see, the paradox is you do need to make sizable bets. However, when you're wrong, you cut back. So there should be a mechanism of risk management. Because if you don't have that, then these large bets will kill you. Vast majority of concentrated managers who have low turnover, don't survive. Now, that is not conventional wisdom. Everybody knows that Buffett has very low turnover and very concentrated portfolio. But my problem is that there aren't too many Buffets around, right? So it, it's it's futile to say Buffett did this, that Buffett did that. Yeah, I mean, but that's an you know unusual skill set. So we feel that we need to manage risk better by cutting losses from time to time, particularly if it's large bet. But if you don't take risky bets, or riskier bets, you won't survive either because rest is arbitraged away. I mean, if you say every name has to have 15% ROE for the last decade, guess what? It's almost a given you will not outperform the S&P. Same thing in China, same thing in Europe. If you feel that everything has to be sort of pristine everything, stocks will discount vast majority of that and any sort of hiccup because direction of travel matters. You go from seven to eight, it's profitable from on a scale of one to 10, right? 10 being the best business. But if you go from four to six, that's far more profitable than going from seven to nine. Eight to 10, if then there's nothing like 10, but if you believe that, you may not make any money. But if you go from nine to eight, oh, that could be a disaster. So I think, I think, I think the direction of travel is the important part of it, but you have to have conviction to make it sizable so that it moves the, it, it moves the needle. And then when you move up that scale, you know, from one to 10 and you're at the eight and nine, that is, those are love companies. And oftentimes they're expected to continue and essentially could be overpriced. And so there's more risk of downside as opposed to the companies that go from a two to a five and that nobody loves. And, you know, accordingly, the price doesn't reflect that. Yeah. And, and then he, like Adobe went from 
20 times earnings to 50 times earnings and back to 20 times earnings, but 50 times earnings, I'm not saying we sold at 50, by the way, but a slight deterioration. So funny thing is, if you look at some of these software companies, they did not miss their earnings to some, uh, they, they, they didn't slow down dramatically. They missed earnings, but they did not slow down dramatically. But the expectation was sky high. And you lost 60, 75%. I mean, Meta or Facebook, as it was called then, you lost 75% matter of 18 months. 75%. So why do you criticize steel companies, by the way? One of the statistics that I've heard from seasoned managers is you know, a hit rate of 52 to 55% is really good because the market's relatively efficient. I'm curious what you feel like your hit rate is both on stock selection and also on big macro calls, because I, I know you focus on both, and is one easier than the other? So first of all, macro calls, we don't buy good macro, but we do risk use macro as a risk management tool. Okay, So we're not saying, oh, China is going to grow or US is going to grow, so let's look at this. But if if there's a macro deterioration, then we do react. You want to so, avoid the tsunamis. Yeah, so Russia, we couldn't avoid the tsunami. We did cut back quite a bit going into the war. We thought Putin would not invade Ukraine, and most of the experts thought the same way, but we were wrong. But we did cut back quite a bit into going into that. So so we try to reduce uh, or manage our own risk. Now, uh, from a bottom-up perspective, I think the key aspect of sort of the bottom-up investing, we feel, is if you look at the data points, how they're evolving, and the macro environment is favorable, then you can size up aggressively and then cut back aggressively on the side if the data turns. And that, by the way, is sort of as simple as it gets in terms of doing both. But macro is an important part tool of the in, in the toolkit, not just bottom-up investing. And is your sense that those calls are generally easier to make relative to what's discounted than... Yeah, you talked about the hit rate. So the hit rate, by the way, is overrated. We have had very good years sometimes when the hit rate was below 50. And we have very mediocre years when the hit rate was 80, 75, 80. In some years, right? In some portfolios. The well, question the si- is the size how much it. you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. Right. So that, by the way, is far more important. Because if, if you make every time you win, make 10, 15, 20% because you have a price target, stock gets to price cut, you sell. Okay, good luck now replacing that with another great business or great valuation or something. We talk about large liquid names here. On the other side, let's see a 40% hit rate, but you're really doing very well when you're right and you cut losses constantly. You probably could have very decent returns. So I still think the hit rate matters, and my hit rate actually has gone down, by the way, versus if I look at 15 years ago. That was part of the lesson. Because if you want, you can have a high hit rate. If you have a longer checklist, you'll probably have a higher hit rate. But guess what? Your returns might be worse. But again, as I said, that comes down to, are you willing to explore or push the boundaries of what's comfortable, what's uncomfortable? If you're not a little bit uncomfortable with your decision, chances are, is not going to be as profitable. Most very comfortable decisions actually don't make you money. There has to be some level of discomfort. Could be valuations, could be the stock has done well, maybe the stock has collapsed. Something has to be out of line because I'm consensus too, right? We see, read, same same data points. I mean, I always find amusing when anybody says they have an in quote-unquote information edge. I don't understand how anybody would have any information edge in Mercedes or Microsoft or Toyota. It's hard. There's plenty of public information around. Insiders are probably trading uh, on their own accounts and so on and so forth, or the relative trading. These are very efficient markets. You talk large liquid names. So you can't have information edge. 
but maybe you can have insightful edge. You maybe you can have better risk management to allow you to sort of manage risk better and and so on and so forth. So I think those things can help you navigate and compound. One of the things you've talked about is following the fundamentals. When the fundamentals start to deteriorate, don't wait because you don't know how you know how deep the trough is. I'm curious how you relate that to price. Oftentimes, price moves in advance of fundamentals. The market's always looking forward. So how do you know when when there's a dip in the price that you're not selling it at the lows because markets can also be cyclical? There's no perfect or right answer for that. I think I think it it really depends on sometime type of businesses, uh, what part of cycle you're in. If you're an early part of cycle, then you can be a little more benign, sort of relaxed about things. If you're late part of cycle, keep a tighter leash. If the valuation is high, then keep a tighter leash, so on and so forth. So I think I think there are a lot of things. For example, in late uh, 2020, 2021, we thought this was very late in the tech cycle. So we were running a much tighter leash, right? We were much more ruthless in sort of saying, oh, this is not as bad, it's fine. Worse than let's say today, we still feel we early part of tech cycle. You're not late. It seems like it. I think there are multiple factors of sort of saying either you buy the dip or sell the dip. Because sometimes that may be the best thing to do, sell the dip. I'm curious, what are some of the big calls you've made in your career, uh, both the good ones and the bad ones? And and what lessons did you learn from the bad ones? Look, you don't really learn from good calls. You only learn from bad calls. Right. Everybody, including me, feels, oh, that's such a great call. And that's you move on, right? You remember how wonderful it was. And it's hard to learn. But I'll give you one of the worst calls that I made. We exited financials in most of the developed market products in by early 2007. Okay, there were plenty of signs. Lehman blew up in September 2008, but there were plenty of signs before that. However, we also long energy in a big way. Summer 2007, we had almost like 20% plus in energy. Okay, and I, I still annoyed the fact that I did not connect the dots between if the broad economy is teetering, which it was, the plenty of data then, not just now. And we exited financial, by the way. So we're very nervous about banks. Now, if you go back to 2003-04, at almost like 25, in fact, some products, 30, 35% financials. Big bull on financials in that era. And we exited completely. We had, I mean, that's a big change from 35% to zero over a three-year period, right? But didn't connect the dots to energy. Why? Because I thought energy is just going to do fine. Why? And the reason was because I thought I knew a lot, and that sort of made me complacent. The most, the biggest losses come where you feel you know. And the problem is, actually don't know, right? There's inherent unknowability in the world. So you're too convinced of yourself. If you're not convinced, you would sell, right? But when you're convinced, you start ignoring data points. And the data points were there. That led to sort of much worse 2008 than 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 I would like to admit. Uh, Russia, another big one. Although the process was not as bad, but could you have done better risk management? The hindsight was obvious, right? Uh, should we have entered Russia? We think so because the fundamentals are very strong of the companies that we own. And by the way, the interesting fact is that these companies that we basically had to mark down to zero are still doing fine. They're minting money. I mean, they've they pretty much recovered everything, right? So, but there were sanctions came in and 50 other things happened, which we wouldn't have predicted. So maybe we could have sized differently. But the process enter, I still believe the process were the right process because we thought the fundamentals were very attractive. Some of them were 50, 20, 25% dividend yield businesses with some of the lowest cost produce of various commodities and the world will use those commodities. 
So I think those are the two big ones. Um, there's a laundry list on every crisis. There's there's some lessons to be learned. But the common theme is, is by the way, if I have to sort of summarize, what are the most common theme amongst thousands of mistakes that I made over my career? Because say, what are the biggest mistakes? I said, tell me the year and the country, I'll tell you the biggest mistake. It's not one or two huge mistakes. I just gave you a few, but those are some. I think a common mistake always is being too comfortable about what we know or what I knew about that, and then slow to react to reduce the risk. That is the common theme in the biggest mistakes. It's less about entering into riskier areas. Because a lot of times, if you don't do that, you you would not outperform. I mean, why would you outperform? It's just it's the most comfortable thing. The index is pretty darn good. But it's the, on the other side, exiting when data points begin to change, that is almost always the root cause. And did we recognize what are the signals? What was the data that we ignored? I mean, Snapchat went from 75 to 7 over a year and a half period. What were the signals? I'm not saying we went all through and through, by the way. But what were the signals? Facebook went down 75% plus. It has recovered. What if it hadn't recovered? So the fact that it recovered doesn't tell me that, doesn't tell me anything, frankly. Because a lot of businesses simply don't recover. So there's no point taking victory laps. Amazon in 99-2000 versus what Amazon became 16-17 years later is a completely different animal. The only common theme is Jeff Bezos. But the business model changed. I personally, and I lived through that cycle, I, I doubt anybody would have predicted that Amazon will be the winner. If you bet on Jeff Bezos, turn out a winner, that's wonderful. But I know that we didn't have the ability. I did not have the ability to predict that. I know for sure. I said, I shorted Amazon. I mean, let's talk about long-term ability to predict. How about zero? Won't happen, right? But I think the common theme, and by the way, Amazon did decline 95% in 2000, 2002. Not many people can stomach that loss. I know I can't. So the common theme always is, are you willing to reduce the bets or the risks from time to time? And I know there's a narrative that, you know, some great investors can hold forever, including Buffett. But look, the fact that I was shorting Amazon should tell you what is my long ability long predict long term. Zero. Yeah, there's a couple of really insightful things that you just shared. So I remember 25 years ago, Amazon and Barnes and Noble were neck and neck. And Amazon was able to adapt and Barnes and Noble was not. And and you can see where those two ended up. I think that's a key insight. The, the other thing that you said that I think is really interesting is it, it goes back to, it circles back to what we talked about with the hit rate and the bet size and and getting out. So if you're really confident that you've got the next big winner, you're more likely than not to have a blind spot. You're more likely than not to overweight it. You're more likely than not to hold on on the downturn. And, and as a result, some of your most, your highest conviction bets could also be your biggest losers because of those dynamics. And so that kind of goes back to your your key lesson in in from your experiences. You got to be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, you got to be humble about being wrong. Uh, all those things feed into avoiding those big losses. Yeah. So people talk about hall of you know sort of hall of shame or whatever losses. I said we'll have we have had so many losses over the years. A wall is not enough. I mean, so what we do is if anybody has a different opinion of. You know, any analyst a different opinion, PM different opinion. It is required to document it. Then send an email. 
so that we know that, okay, you said it and we can learn something that otherwise always convenient afterwards, right? So we like disagreement. We seek disagreement and make sure to document. So we try to document every time people has, you know what? We feel a large position will is, is will not work or he does or she doesn't like it. Please document, send an email, not to me, but to, so it's, it's captured in our system. So we know that so and so folk, and the question is why? Explain why, because that's where the lesson is going to be from. And if you look at the big shifts in markets, I mean, 90s, if you didn't own tech, you wouldn't have done well. In early 2007, eight years, if you don't own financial, some of the non tech, you wouldn't have done well, right? And then in last seven, eight years, if you didn't own tech again, and energy last three years, if you don't own any energy exposure, it'll be very tough to do. So these cycles happen. Even if you don't capture from, let's say, one to nine of us, Let's say the cycle goes from zero to 10. You don't have to buy like bottom level and then sell at nine or 10. Even if you catch from three to seven or four to six, that may be good enough. But make sure you exit because the pain from nine to four, those kill records. I mean, a lot of growth measures, you know, in 2022 has basically shattered 15, 20 records. Yeah, I mean, you've gone from outperforming three, 400 base point index to underperforming because it lost 45, 50%. A lot of quote unquote quality managers, right? What they forgot was that valuation high, if you pay high enough multiples, a high quality name becomes low quality. There's nothing absolute about high quality. There's no business which is absolutely great. I don't know of any. It changed, you know, perceptions dramatically. And more importantly, valuations can itself make a business very dangerous to own. That's right. You can take a great business and give it a bad price and it's not a good investment. Yeah. I mean, listen, Microsoft declined by almost three quarters. It was a monopoly in 2000 and was a monopoly in 2010. Knowing you and following you for, for a long time, uh, one of the aspects of your approach that really stands out is your ability to take in the information that the market presents, the data, as you described, and reach a reasonable conclusion about the likely trend that is to emerge in the future. And, and more often than not, it's the right call. And, and I'm curious, do you feel that the market is slow to respond to those things that, I, I, to me, I feel like it's obvious, not just in hindsight, but as you're describing it, uh, kind of following you for, for a long time, do you just feel like the market is just slow to catch on to these trends until they've actually emerged? I think you're overstating the reality because we have been right a lot of times, but we've been wrong more. What has helped us is that we, once we saw the data, we were wrong, we cut our losses. So, because I said, you don't have to write all the time. Just make sure you write the winners and cut the losses. I do agree that the markets are very slow to react because they need more, more and more data. And the best decision I made when you, let's say, on a scale of one to 10 on information scale, at probably six, seven, not eight, nine. Eight, nine is too late, and three, four, maybe too early, but three, four will be way more profitable than six, seven, right? So th the question is, what is your comfort? And what I found is that if you wait for eight, and I used to, by the way, the hit rate was much higher, but returns were much lower. So if you want to improve your hit rate, you have to go lower. But the lower you go, the hit rate will drop dramatically, and that's a stomach lining issue then, right? Can you accept a lot of losses? small losses to get big winners. So we feel that six, seven is a pretty good number. If you go to seven, eight, you're too late. If you go to four, five, and there's no precision that value. This is obviously in a kind of hypothetical. So uh, so the trends generally folks are slow. 
However, you do need to sort of explore trends which are maybe more nascent, but size it accordingly. Don't oversize it. And if the data proves you right, then increase exposure. Because a lot of these trends last a long time. They don't, trends rarely are over in two years because that's a capital sort of, you know, uh, capital allocation issues, right? If energy, for example, capital in N2 energy has been cut in half, demand is still a record high and increasing every year, global oil demand. But the cap is cut in half. So it'll take a long time before capital comes in, supply comes in, and so on and so forth, right? You will get many cycles in between. So good news, these cycles can last long enough. And you just need to get some of the big, some of these big calls in a somewhat reasonable manner, right? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to get everything perfectly right. But that's where I feel that you need an inventory of names because chance you'll catch the inflection point if you have you sort of covered it somewhat or invested somewhat. So in fact, some of the better some of the better names that that we've owned in the last few years were the names we lost money actually a few years ago. But we knew the names better because we lost money. And he said, you know what? Somewhere down the line, we can capitalize that better. So if you use that as sort of a lesson, I call it tuition. If you keep paying these tuitions over time, you'll also cash those. Uh, and it could be completely different areas. Could be steel, could be US software, could be China steel, by the way. One of the more profitable names last year was a, a Korean steel company and a Turkish refiner. Who would have predicted that? And the worst names were the, some of the most commonly owned names, the Chinese tech names, and everybody loved them, right? Nobody knew. Where, where are you finding opportunities now, just kind of the general areas? We're actually very bullish on U.S., believe it or not. I mean, we feel that U.S. has a lot of things going for it. And since early last year, there's a the reshoring boom or onshoring. There's a gas advantage, national energy cost advantage U.S. has, the tech advantage U.S. has. So there are a lot of good things going on. Broadly speaking, the world is in pretty good shape. Uh, we are not gloom and doom at all. Inflation, we feel, is pretty well behaved, but we quite like things happening in Latin America and Brazil and Mexico. Not so much in Argentina, because Argentina, I think the directory, if they can pull this off, it'll be fantastic. But it's not easy. The changes that the new president tried to make will be tough. I hope he succeeds, but it'll be tough. Very bullish on India. Uh, Mex- uh, sorry, Indonesia. Instrumentally, uh, very bullish in, on Turkey, but also Middle East. We feel a lot of the good things happening in Middle East. They really do want to make the transition from oil to other areas. There's a lot of openness to, you know, to, to, to welcome foreign capital. We're still pretty cautious on some of the East Asian or North Asian markets, especially China. And also it's relative call, right? I mean, the other the, the better opportunities. So, you know, that, that's one area we're a little bit cautious on. One of the things that I always keep an eye on is the cyclicality of markets. And you just look at the different countries and U.S. has been the place to be the last decade plus. But people forget the decade before during the 2000s, that was one of the worst countries to be invested in. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, you know, having a lot of interest in U.S. right now. What's your longer term perspective on U.S. given you know high valuations and you know a lot of capital is already in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, corporate earnings matter. So why is U.S. done well? Because corporate earnings is strong. And I think I think from that picture, it seems reasonable. I mean, I don't like to make these long 10, 10 20-year predictions because um, who knows? Um, and the valuation, by the way, it seems expensive, but you have to also recognize that the construction of the indices in U.S. looks very different. A lot of cyclical indices, industrials, energy were much bigger component of the index. 
25, 30 years ago. So it re- does really matter. to co- Why should we compare what happened in 1980 today? The business are a lot less cyclical, which are a large component of the index, right? So I think I think it's a little bit dangerous to compare the valuation 50, 100 years because 100 years ago, it was a much more cyclical index. And hence, I would argue, deserved a lower multiple, right? So there's a structural reason. But as sitting here and now, I think there are a lot of good things happening, um, uh, particularly in inflation front and and so on and so forth. Obviously, we do have to watch the deficits. There seem to be rather alarming comfort with higher deficits, like booming economy running in massive deficits. What gives? It can continue in the long run, right? So that, I would say, should make people nervous. But, I mean, Europe and Japan isn't, aren't exactly behaving that much better. Actually, emerging markets are behaving much more responsibly from a deficit perspective. But I would say that you know, we'll, we'll, we'll cross the bridge when you get to the bridge. Again, Let's keep reacting to data points. And so far, I think it seems perfectly reasonable. But a lot of other things look attractive too. There are a lot of interesting opportunities in Europe and Asia. So, you know, if you look at China and Japan, maybe two large markets where we are not, we are not finding much. But it's, again, a very bottom-up story. So the macro cross-turns we feel are actually much more benign. The inflation picture is, is getting better, not worse. Uh, yes, could it spike up again? Well, again, we'll cross the bridge when you get to the bridge. So far, the data is pointing south, not north, on inflation. Are there other large trends that you're seeing? Maybe AI or uh, you know energy or financials with an inverted yield curve. Are there other big big themes that you're looking at? Yeah, look, I, I think AI is very very early innings. So um, uh, there'll be some winners or some losers, and and our job is to find out who the winner is going to be. But again, it's very very early. Uh, in the cycle, um, we own a bunch of those names. We feel this is real. It'll change a lot of different things. There's obviously some frothiness from time to time, but a little bit of frothiness is not a bad sign because people are bullish for the good reason. Right? And just because they're frothy doesn't mean you take the opposite. My view is contrarian is the is the deer that gets hunted first that leaves the pack. That's a contrarian deer, right? Gets hunted first. So be careful of contrarians. There's no benefit being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Uh, I mean, European banks, well, they were very bad for a long time. Maybe they look a little bit better now, and they were cheap for the longest time. So, I think I think all the trends that you mentioned are generally positive. Uh, financials, some uh, you got to be very selective uh, in terms of more than some of the other areas. Certain countries are are in good shape, where the loan growth is there, the valuations are okay, and the uh, the tailwinds are there. But the other areas may not be so. But AI, energy, we feel are structural longer term trends which unless the narrative changes in some big way or there's massive amount of capital coming in, I think it's a little more durable. Uh, Rajiv, you've been very uh, generous with your time. I wanted to close with uh, one one topic that I asked the guests at the end, which is we, you've shared a lot of insights already, but is there one insight that stands out that you feel like most investors may not have thought about or heard elsewhere? Oh boy, that's hard. I mean, as they say, there's nothing new under the sun. So I, I can't tell you something which nobody has heard of. I rely on one simple principle is that admit your mistakes and then adapt, adapt again. Because who knows where the world is going to be? It's simply impossible. These long-term predictions are pointless because the world discounts a lot of different things. In this day and age, information does spread, disseminated very equally across, across the world. I always find why for folks may seem like discipline, but it also sounds rigidity. There's a fine line between rigidity and discipline. Most of the shops go disappear because of bad performance, which is because they're rigid, not disciplined. You can hide under the, oh, we're being disciplined. 
Yeah, is it discipline or being rigid? That's the challenge in this business, by the way. In no other business, folks, no CEO in any company will get away with the fact that I've changed nothing and trust me, it'll turn around. Have you ever heard of a coach, any sports say, oh, the performance sucks, but the team is very stable. Don't worry. I don't know how long will that last, right? But in this business, you hear all the time. But the funny thing is, this is the most, the area where things will get arbitraged the fastest, less so in sports, but in this business, it will. Yeah, and, and a lot of this is counterintuitive. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, sharing your insights, uh, giving us the time and uh, continue to you know, track you and uh, spend time with you and, and learn from you. So I appreciate it, Rajiv. Thanks, Alex. It was a great conversation. Hopefully it's, it'll be sometime again. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit our website at insightfulinvestor.org to access past shows and learn more about our podcast. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at insightfulinvestor.org. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations, nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.